Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. It is January 20th and I am Katie Helper and I'm here with Gabe Pacheco. That's right. I'm right here. <laughs> He's right here. That's right. Present. Gabe, of course, is a hilarious comedian. He has a show called Funhouse Comedy. Funhouse Comedy. Which you can see tonight. We just moved it to Pete's Candy Pete's Store Candy in the store. heart of uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And of course, I'm always joined by engineer in chief, Reggie Johnson. Please. Hey guys. Hi guys. And we're here every Wednesday at 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., as you probably know, on WBAI. We started a little bit non profit late, uh, maybe like 6.15. Oh, yeah. I'm just here non profit late. No non-profit. big deal. Non profit time. NPL. <laughs> NBD, hashtag NBD. We have a great show for you guys coming up today. Such a great show. Ready for this? We are going to be talking to Greg Grandin, the historian and professor of Latin American history at NYU, and he's going to take us on a virtual journey to Central America, a land of unparalleled beauty and astonishing U.S.-supported death squads. Violence and instability. Mm, yes, Beautiful, right? yes. A land that has both sunshine and shadows. Exactly. <laughs> and then we're going to be talking to reporter Bill Conroy about the war on drugs and why the United States media is hating so much on Sean Penn for interviewing El Chapo. Could it be Penn Envy? Uh, All right. Wow. That's good, right? That's wow. actually Bill Conroy came clever. up with that. So, clever. I, oh, you're being genuine. It is clever, right? No, I, I he liked it. Reggie Red, likes it. I liked it. I'm okay, a big good. fan of. Puns. I thought you I liked, liked it too. Yeah, so, like... just to set up why we're talking about Central America in the first place, is it just because Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz are competing for the title for the most immigrant bashing son of a Cuban immigrant ever? That's relevant. That's part of it. Is so are it... they self-hating? What is the deal? No, they just want votes from the base, so it's red meat. Mm. Are we talking about this just because we have such serious, nuanced thinkers like Donald Trump offering very practical immigration reform policies like banning Muslims? Yeah. That's yeah. part of it. Uh-huh. That's sure, that's part of it. Well, I mean, he's, ta- he's talking about building giant walls, too. Which giant is, walls. You know, Muslim-proof Mexican-built walls is what he wants to do. Doubly exotic. Keep out Mexicans and Muslims at the same time. That's impressive. Most walls can't do that. They focus on one group that they are trying to keep out. But Donald Trump can build it. If he can't do it, nobody can. Another reason we're talking about immigration is because there's this, the Supreme Court is going to rule on whether Obama can give people amnesty. I probably shouldn't use that word. With his executive orders? Yeah. Gabe and I, as you can tell, are using very specific language because we both have law degrees and Latin American history immigration specialties. But we're still going to talk to someone who knows even more about it. Greg Grandin, the historian and professor of Latin American history at NYU. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Greg Grandin, of course, is the author of many books, including Empire's Workshop, Latin America, the United States, and the Rise of New Imperialism. And he writes for The Nation. And he's also written a book on Henry Kissinger. We're big fan, we're big fan of Hen- Henry Kissinger. He's a big follower of the show. We really like Henry Kissinger. <laughs> Henry Kissinger, did he date a lot of journalists? Wasn't that his thing? Did he? Power is after That was his thing, yeah. Okay. Is that how yeah. he got to you, Greg? Grandin? Yes, on yes the record? exactly. He came up to me. Strange, strange bedfellows. Strange bedfellows, right. We're really excited to have you on because you know so much about Central America, Latin America in general. You also make really great connections to today's politics. We wanted to talk to you because two weeks ago, we were talking about gun violence and Obama's executive order and my co-host, Gabe Pacheco. What, well, uh, so I don't want to put you on the spot. I can also paraphrase what you said. Uh, what did I say? You know, it was I'll two weeks you. ago. You know what? Because sometimes the brilliance, I can't, I was struck by it because it's not. it was from you. Yeah. For you, it's just nothing. For me, I, I caught it. It stayed with me. And basically what you said was, it's great that Obama shed a tear for children that died last year at Sandy Hook. But he's also at the same time sending children who are still alive 
five with right. their families back to Central America, where they will be greeted by gun violence and other types of violence. To be fodder for MS-13. To certain death or at least trauma. So we have this moment to feel good and see him as sort of a compassionate leader and a hero, but right. uh, he's... He's uh, Why is he doing tearing that? families Anyone away know? from safety. That was your point, Gabe. Yes, yes. And it was a little, you had some words. You, you, you went there. You were critical of Obama, as it's your right to be. We want to talk to you, Greg, about Obama's record on immigration and also the relationship between U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Central America and the immigration refugee crisis, if one can call it that. Yeah, well, Obama's record on, uh, on on deportation is abysmal, and I think that's right to call out the hypocrisy. <laughs> I think a lot of people did that at the time. They noted the the kind of spectacle of shedding tears on you know in the press conference about gun violence, rightly so. But then at the same time, <laughs> presiding over a, a policy that um, that deports not just you know women and children and men back to the most dangerous one of the most dangerous places in the world, what's called Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, and and Guatemala, and we could talk a little bit about wh why it's the most dangerous area in the world, which is a result of U.S. economic policy and 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 the legacy of Cold War dirty wars. But um, but this isn't something that Obama has inherited. He's also continued it. He's, his administration has pushed a kind of very disruptive and and uh, free trade policy, which leads to the dispossession and dislocation in the countryside. It leads to migration, and at the same time. In 2015, he deported something like uh, 90,000 people back to back to the Northern Triangle and many more to Mexico. So, in some ways, this policy that that was announced right before Christmas and and executed right after New Year's of of, of stepping up the deportations. The Washington Post had a story about you know raids. Most deportations take place in the middle of the night, 4 a.m. You got to knock on your door. Thousand Guatemalans have been sent back. Hundreds of Salvadorans. So the question is why? What one why announce it if it's if it's no worse than what has already been started and that was started in 2015, 2014, 2013 and 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 why do it at all? If you wanted to be generous, you could say that the Obama administration is trying to prove that it could secure the borders as it confronts a Supreme Court challenge as you mentioned as it tries to get substantive immigration reform but you know it's basically a, a policy of de deterrence through deportation the idea is that the more you deport and the more public you make it the more you will scare people from from trying to come into the u.s and i, I think that that's just not going to work and i think it's it's brutal and it's it's pr it's pretty cruel and pretty inhumane of course we all remember when obama's immigration plan was greeted with a you lie by Joe Wilson, a particularly charming congressman, Republican, who then raised money off of that. I want to get to kind of the political calculation behind what Obama is doing, but can we first set up a little bit of the history of what the U.S. did in, let's say, 1954 in Guatemala, the 1980s Nicaragua, El Salvador, yeah. uh, am I missing anyone? You know, no, well, Nicaragua, the like Contra Salvador, War, I mean, right. what didn't they do, right? right? I mean, you know, uh, through the Cold War, right. and just to, you know, put it quickly, the U.S. supported uh, all sorts of horrible coups and counterinsurgencies and insurgencies, right-wing anti-communists that you know, led to 200,000 deaths in Guatemala, 70,000 in El Salvador, 50,000, if not more, in Nicaragua. And these countries are really still dealing with the legacy of that. 
And then what was imposed on them was this very brutal free trade regime, free trade in quotation marks, because there's nothing really free trade about it. It's just finance capital, resource extraction, wrenching open these markets to U.S. agro industries and destroy regional markets. So this really began in full under Clinton, right? The promotion of NAFTA and, and the militarization of the border went hand in hand. The Clinton administration and Rahm Emanuel in particular were very clear that if you're going to push free trade, you also had to start clamping down on the border because free trade NAFTA was going to produce this influx of dispossessed people, and that's exactly what it did. So Obama inherited that disastrous policy, but he's continued it. The ambassador to El Salvador in 2013 basically threatened to withhold developmental aid if if Salvador didn't pass a law that opened up government services to private investment. And so Salvador capitulated the Central American Free Trade, Colombia Free Trade Agreement. You know, these were all passed under under Obama and continued. So this that's um, structural adjustment? Structural yeah, structural adjustment. Adjustment, really kind of opening up the economy, doing away with anything that could protect local industries and manufacturing, local agriculture against the very capital-intensive U.S. agro-industry. You can't compete against it, obviously. I mean, remember, the earth, I mean, this is a little off-topic, it's Haiti, but after the yeah. Haitian earthquake, Bill Clinton apologized, you know, for passing the basically what we call, what the left calls neoliberalism. Right. He apologized to Haiti. It's the same thing with Central Central America. El Salvador is being sued by a U.S. corporation in in a in the transnational economic court because it's tried to limit the rights, limit corporation uh, mining industry in El Salvador because El Salvador is, one, is a densely populated country. It ha- it's very water stressed, and so it passed regulations that limited how much mining was mining just pours arsenic and cyanide into the water supply. And so Salvador is being pressured heavily by U.S. corporations using U.S. free trade treaties to, to, to basically abrogate those laws. So all of these things create the conditions for the, the, the push factors. The other thing is the gangs, the gangs and the violence in these regions. Those gangs are creatures of the Cold War. The reason why there's no gangs in Nicaragua is because Nicaraguans who fled the Sandinista government were treated not quite as good as the Cubans were or are to this day, but they were treated better than the Salvadorans and Guatemalans right. were. Salvadorans and Guatemalans were thrown in jail in Los Angeles, and that's, and that's the origins of the gangs. So just, Nicaraguans just, to, were, to, just to make sure everyone who's listening is, under, is following, so to clarify, part of the reason, correct me if I'm wrong, that the, Cube, we ha- the U.S. had to kind of treat Cubans well to justify demonizing Castro and the embargo, the blockade. Yeah, Cuba was the government is our uh, enemy. So 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 we have to welcome them. Yeah, so the migrants are treated as political refugees. If if he's so bad, then we can't turn them back to him. Right, and the same thing happened in the 80s in Central America when Nicaraguans were treated as right, because we were opposed, because the Reagan administration was opposed to the Sandinista government. So Nicaraguans were treated as political refugees, and so they weren't, uh, were Salvadorans and, and and Guatemalans were thrown, and Hondurans were thrown in jail, and that was the origins of the gangs, which create a lot of the, you know, which and, have created yeah. a lot of the so, horror in these countries. Like MS-13. Right, the, exactly. Uh, the, uh, exactly. And, and they would uh, do jail time in the U.S., and then they would be deported after they had been uh, institutionalized in our federal Very penitentiaries. Very humane. 
Right, exactly. And they would go back and then uh, transmit the gang culture that they learned in uh, the United States uh, exactly. back to the villages that they came Wonderful from. Wonderful anthropological process of and of, uh, and, and another sharing. another source of the violence is the drug war, the militarization of the drug war. Clinton's yeah. plan, Colombia, which basically telegraphed the violence that was concentrated in Colombia up through Central America and Mexico. I know you're going to have. Bill Conroe talking about El Chapo in Mexico, right. and he can pick this up. But, you know, the, uh, so all of these things. By the way, uh, it's too bad that El Salvador didn't come to Flint, Michigan. They could have organized against the water poisoning happening there. I know. Yeah. Uh, well, or Rahm, what, Rahm Emanuel as governor, as a uh, mayor of Chicago. I mean, Rahm Emanuel, you know, who pushed through NAFTA to push right. through the militarization of the border. And so now he's, you know, talking about the chickens coming home to roost. Right. So when you talk, uh, just to speak on this, uh, uh, the uh, large change most recently in the instability in, La- in Central America is NAFTA. So well, the passing- NAFTA is a kind of... Co- code word for a broader array of free trade treaties. There's the Central American Free Trade Agreement, there's the Colombian Free Trade Agreement, there's the what will be the you know the Obama administration's push for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, All of these things are, are devastating, and, yeah. and they have been devastating, and it's an ongoing... So the point, you know, the point is that the, the 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 violence in these countries and the economic poverty in these countries is a, is a, is a is a result of U.S. policy, not a, in spite of U.S. policy. Right, right. My question about U.S. policy then is uh, in like let's say just going back to the Clinton administration's era, moving forward, has there been any sort of difference in policy, um, be it a Democrat in office or a Republican in office? Good question, no. Gabriel. Not at not, all. Not at all. Not when it comes to free trade. No. Right. right. So, so with the Iran Contras would not have happened maybe under Democrat. Right. But Iran Contra. No. The, no. But but, but the, the economic policy. The economic right. stuff. And 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 it was Clinton who passed Plan Colombia, which began the post Cold War militarization of crime of you know of of and 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 that that has metastasized into things like Plan Central America. The you know there's been all sorts of security initiatives that the U.S. I mean, right over in 2014, in response to the first spike in child migrants crisis back in 2013-2014, Washington began urging, pushing Mexico, the Times reported on this a few months ago, to stop migrants there. And Mexico has sent back, so the U.S. has deported about 90,000 Central Americans in 2015. Mexico deported 200,000 Central Americans back to Central America. That's kind of like the front line in in this new crisis. Yeah, there's a movie, a Sin Nombre, that uh, follows the um, Guatemalans, I believe, at the border with Mexico and then trying to take a train all the way up uh, to get to California. Yeah, and one of the most chilling things in that New York Times uh, report was that Mexico is is lowering the bridges on the train tracks, oh, my God. so the people. So so if when those trains That's pass so overnight, disgusting. they they literally sweep people off the train and and kill them. You oh know people. God. You know so I mean it's it's that level of brutality we're talking about. So people are trying to hang are on top of the train or hanging onto the train. And yeah, one of the famous. You know, it's this famous image that a lot the right likes to traffic in of these trains that come up from top of from Chiapas and that come up from southern Mexico and, and, and the migrants, undocumented migrants who ride on top of it. 
so they lower the they've been lowering the bridges so when we look at the current conditions in central america let's say guatemala el salvador and uh, nicaragua is it uh very similar or there different uh dynamics when it comes to the violence and uh the instability well like i said nicaragua has a different dynamic i mean we we can i mean the legacy of the sandinistas and the current manifestation of the sandinistas with daniel Ortega, we could talk about but the fact is that the sandinistas have a different policing model much more community policing that you know gangs are not really a major mm. that's this kind of large-scale transnational gangs that miss 13 and, and Manitoba's return, all of that stuff, is it, it, it's not a major presence in Nicaragua. And I think that that's the legacy of the Sandinista revolution. I mean, it's complicated. but So community-based policing sounds like uh, something the United States could... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Between and the water, we have a lot to learn from Central America. And I just want to make sure that listeners all know that, you know, of, about our colorful and really consistently uh, helpful interventions in this area. So just going through the history, it's too, it's too, it would take too long to go all the way to the beginning, but let's just start at Gu- in Guatemala in 1954 when the CIA and Eisenhower administration support a coup overthrowing uh, the democratically elected uh, president, president, social democratic uh, president, Ar- that Ar- leads to a, a nearly four decade civil war that leaves 200,000 dead. Right. In El Salvador, the U.S. supports uh, right-wing death squad counterinsurgency against the leftist insurgency in the 1980s. And it was kicked off. It wasn't kicked off, but it's kind of symbolized by the murder of Oscar Romero, Archbishop of El Salvador, Nicaragua, the Sandinistas win in 1979, the Sandinista Revolution, and the Reagan administration spends billions of dollars to destabilize the the government through the support of the Contras, you know, another, basically another murderous uh, uh, insurgency. Um, and it goes all the way through. And, you know, and Honduras, the Obama administration Honduras, ultimately um, legitimated the coup in Honduras right, in 2009. Right. So it's not, this isn't past history. This I isn't, mean, it wasn't really a coup. They only kidnapped the president <laughs> in his pajamas and put him on a plane. So maybe right, that's right. democratic, uh, the democratic process working. Right. Uh, unclear. Now, what damage did it do for the Obama administration not to, to claim that as a coup or not to kind of denounce it as a coup? Well, um, it didn't do any, I mean, the political consequences, I mean, there's not a lot of pol- political cost of supporting horrible policies in Central America. I, Unfortunately, right. this isn't the Middle East, right? That's not the, con- you know, the, I mean, this is the difference between the Middle East and, and Central America and, and, and most of the rest of the world or Southeast Asia. The U.S. could pursue gen- po- policies that result in genocide and crimes against humanity, but doesn't really... There's not a lot of there's blowback, but not the kind of blowback right, that happens in right. the U.S. The Middle East is is what qualitatively changes foreign right. policy. But because in, in terms of how I, I think I wasn't clear in my question, although you just raised an interesting point that I want to talk more about. But in terms of what the U.S. could have done, had the U.S. declared it a coup, what would that have done? Well, it, remember it Hugo Chavez symbolic? was still alive, so it, right. so so the Obama administration was getting a lot of pushback against the right for. You know, there's a lot of equation of Obama with Hugo Chavez, right. and so and similar. and and the coup the coup in Honduras kind of galvanized the 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 Latino right in 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 New Orleans and in Florida. You know, that was based around Cuban exiles. Right. So the the Obama administration made a decision that it wasn't worth. They did call it a coup at first, oh, and they did they they did in the first couple of weeks come out fairly strongly against it. But then they just then they just led by Hillary Clinton actually was Secretary of State. They just 
they just backpedaled to the point where they, they wound up legitimating the coup and legitimating the regime that emerged out of it. And also, we forgot to mention, and this is so so in, inconsiderate of, of us, but the School of the Americas, of course. Right. The School the, of the Americas is another... Basically, it was it was based in Panama for a long time. Then it was moved at, because of protest up to Fort Benning in in Georgia. And it's 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 the U.S. trains Latin American military people in a lot of different ways in country and a lot of different programs. Yeah. But the School of the Americas became symbolic of the support of this, pretty much every every death squatter and every uh, <laughs> and every person every military guy who right. committed atrocities was trained right. passed through the school of the america has a very impressive pedigree also yeah. uh just recently i think just this month 18 people were arrested 18 18 high-ranking officers in guatemala were arrested for crimes against humanity and who had been trained at the school of the Americas. yes right? yes so <laughs> it's still it's still up it's still working i mean that was year that was i guess 20 years ago that they committed the crimes but they yeah were still, during the civil war right, impunity there was still impunity but i like the school of the America's because it takes a kind of pan Latin American internationalist <laughs> yeah. view of, yeah, uh, international. of ethnic, you know, of uh, ethnic cleansing, and uh, it's where like all the Bond villains sort of like right. get their training. <laughs> right. right, but it's beyond. It's kind of Marxist, and it's it's rejection of na- of nation state borders. It's like know? an internationalist terror. Uh, squad. Yeah, right. it's like That's the it's like the Death Squad International. Exactly. We should do a remix of the International <laughs> that puts the Death Squad in there. Um, well. Uh, Oh, question. So any difference between among, I should say, Mark O'Malley, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders? Well, Clinton, Clinton, yes. Clinton, if only because Clinton has been in the vanguard of pushing free tra- Columbia free trade, free trade in Central America. It was Clinton who, who led, who who organized the, the legitimation of the coup in Honduras. Clinton's ties in Colombia, which is, you know, a topic for another show, right. uh, are deep and sordid and horrible. Um, so, yes, just the, I think there, I think Martin O'Malley uh, said something at the debate about he this. He did. He actually, yeah, uh, Central America and border and immigration came up within the last 10 minutes of the two-hour debate. And yeah, that was during and- his closing statement. And Bernie Sanders, you know, it's the trade-off. He's he kind of supports the military-industrial complex if he doesn't have to talk about it. You know, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> you know, he doesn't he doesn't kinda really. Light, but, though, right? but Hillary Clinton, I think, is really bad. So she'd I mean, be the she, worst. She had, you know, yeah, she has, you know, the Clinton Foundation in Colombia, and and uh, and is uh, is 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 a quite assorted. Uh, <laughs> right. you know, so do you stand with your with your uh, publishing with your publication? The nation in their endorsement of Bernie Sanders. Sure, yeah, okay. of course, it can't be. We just got an on-the-record endorsement from Greg Randon <laughs> for Bernie Sanders. This is a game changer. Well, um, Greg, where can people find you online? GregRandon.com, well, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, no, not really. Oh, I mean, okay. you know, that's uh, your that's your suit. I need more of an online presence. I have okay. to get more of an online presence. But you're on Twitter. You're on the Twitters. Kind of a little bit, but the, the na- you know the nation, the nation. I, uh, kind of nation blog, which right. you know. And uh, NYU classes, people can just stop by, maybe. Yeah, I'm, say hi. I'm opening up your, your, I'm making your class audit friendly. Yeah. Well, um, and yeah, we would love to have you back. Come in person next time. Uh, you've been great on the phone, and um, your books are great. I when I used to teach Latin American history at Dalton, I ordered them, and uh, so yeah, that's Thanks, spreading the revolution to you know the ruling 
class elites, of which I am part because I went to Dalton, so it's fine. Um, Got to get in from the inside. Uh, thank you so much, and we'd love to have you back. And I'd love to be on. Thanks. And have a great week. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Greg Grandin. What a great interview, huh? So fun. So, so fun. fun. So informative. So informative. So knowledgeable. Uh, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Blood on her hands. So much blood. I mean, it's, it, the question is who has the most – everyone has bloody yeah. hands. The question yeah. is whose hands drip the most – have the most weight – like yeah. are weighed down the most by, mm-hmm. by the blood of Central Americans. I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's Basically, what we should be weighing. Basically, every United States government official who's had a hand in foreign policy right. uh, since the Monroe Doctrine. Yes, and starting with Monroe himself. He doesn't get off the hook, not on the Katie <laughs> Alver show, not with Gabe Pacheco in the room. And speaking of getting off the hook, uh, I don't know, let's get on the hook with... Bill Conroy. Bill, are you there? Yeah, I am. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for coming on. Bill Conroy is a reporter, independent investigative reporter, and he writes at places like Narco News and the Daily Beast, and he covers the drug war and law enforcement corruption and all sorts of other great things. And you can find him where, Bill, online? Just before I, we start, I just want Nar- to... Narconews.com. Okay, Narconews.com. And you have a Twitter handle you want to share, or you want to stay in the closet like uh, uh, Greg Grandin did? <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's at the Conroy 3, so okay. it's not real memorable. All right. Well, now it will be, because it's been said on the Katie Halber Show. It's all across the city, yeah. Exactly. Okay. And you're here with me, of course, and Gabe Pacheco, my co-host, and Reggie Johnson, the man in charge of the engineering, social engineering, too. And we are so happy to have you on the show to talk about the drug wars in general, but also this specific article you wrote that talks about what you describe as pen envy, uh, the U.S. media's response and the Mexican authorities' response to Sean Penn's interview with the notorious Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. So what is this pen envy of which you write? Well, essentially, the, the, the story, uh, you know, looks at two of the, the major claims that came out of uh, the mainstream media. Uh, uh, I would characterize it as an attack on the uh, Penn and uh, uh, Del Castillo, um, you know, they, they more or less jointly reported that story. Uh, right. Kate Del C- C- yeah, and, and who's the who's an actress who was in touch with who? I guess El Chapo was a who, fan of hers right. for her portrayal in a telenovela of a, a drug lord or a drug lord's wife. Um, I think she was a drug lord oh, yeah. herself. That was that, so sexist of me to assume right, she had to be the wife of a drug lord. <laughs> I apologize. He was like, I really like the realism that you bring to this exactly. role. Exactly. And the agency you bring to the female character. Yes. It really undoes the machismo but, that we've... Yeah, sorry. Next next show, yeah, we'll get into true, the actual it, telenovela analysis. Right, right. Yeah, and, it, and if, if people are familiar with that story, the two lines of attack was, was, was that Penn essentially, you know, was a you know not a journalist and, you know, this was a horrible thing he did, you know, interviewing Chapo Guzman, who's a horrible criminal and all that, and he didn't, you know, uh, you know write the story enough about how horrible he was, yeah. and that this was an insult to all the uh, Mexican journalists that, that have, you know, died trying to cover the drug war. And then the other line of attack, which is the Mexican government, was essentially, um, you know, putting him under surveillance and then saying that, uh, you know, the duo, Penn and Del Castillo, were responsible for the Mexican government tracking down El Chapo because of this this interview they did in, in somewhere in the mountains of Mexico, in the right. Golden Triangle um, region. And so the article kind of dissects those two claims and and puts some sunshine on them and, and, and essentially, you know, 
shows them to be bogus. Um, and, you know, on the side, the part where they accuse them of, uh, you know, not following journalistic practices and, and uh, him, you know, essentially uh, representing an insult to all the Mexican journalists who take great risks or even U.S. journalists. Um, the reality is, I characterize what Penn was doing with the Rolling Stone articles, essentially uh, citizen journalism, right. which is outside the mainstream, quote-unquote, right. professional world of journalism. That he, he actually wasn't didn't take any money for it. At least he said he didn't. Right. Whatever his motives were for doing the story, the story, you know, essentially is a first-person account of his journey uh, and his attempts to get this interview and his journey down there and, and what happened, and it stays strictly to that. And just putting aside whether you like the story or not, cause right. always any story you read, including mine, you're going to critique, and some people are going to hate them, and some people are going to love sure. them, uh, and some, and there's going to be in between. But the the point that somehow, uh, you know, that as a citizen journalist, he was you know messing in an area and interfering with real journalist work. Um, you know, one of the things pointed out in the story is that uh, this worldwide in 2015 there were like 27 quote unquote citizen journalists that were killed, murdered right. in, the, in the pursuit of stories. Mexico alone, that, that, that happens in, in the, you know, Re, Re, so, uh, Nuevo Laredo and Reynosa. In other words, it's not, so they're that, saying that real professional journalists are at risk, but people like you aren't, and you, Bill, are saying actually people like Sean Penn, or people without his celebrity, but people who are kind of outside the mainstream establishment media machine are at risk and have been killed also. Right? Yeah, and in fact, probably in many cases, especially in Mexico, more so. Right. You're out, like, for a while, there was, in some of these areas where the press was completely blacked out because they literally were being killed and then they were afraid, so there was no coverage. You know, individual citizens were going on Twitter or Facebook to try to get the word out about, um, you know, developments in their region to help protect people. In other words, this is happening here, this is happening there, don't go there, that kind of thing. That's journalism, right? Right. I mean, that, that's what journalists do. And, you know, that's what those people were murdered. They were right. like six of them murdered that were right. using social media to report the facts in the drug war that the quote-unquote professional right. media backed away from. Right, and the irony is, um, of course, that they don't have the name recognition or the official, like, backing or protection, so lots of people don't even know about them to mention them. Right, right. And there's a bigger context here. Um, the Penn Envy, which obviously is jealousy and... Some, and, and, of course, Sean Penn, in his 60 Minutes interview, kind of threw out the same line that he thought it was, was envy that the attacks were, were so vicious. Um, the way, way I'm looking at envy is more professional, and, and this is this is really true of, you know, I've been to journalism school, I've worked in the mainstream uh, media world for years, on top of doing what I would consider pro bono citizen uh, uh, journalism as well, because I think it's, 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 it's vital that that happens. you got one foot in the street, one foot in the system, as Abby well, Hoffman would say. Yeah, well, I guess. Um, but it's important. Citizen journalism is important because if it's outside the influence. There's a lot of stories the mainstream media won't right. cover or can't or doesn't cover for whatever reason. And, and a lot of times it's stories about people who don't have power and social movements in particular. And those stories won't get told unless there's people in those movements telling them, right. you know, acting as their own journalists. Um, and there's also a thing about, you know, journalism school, you're taught. There's actually a theory called gatekeeping. And the theory is that as a professional journalist, you are the gatekeeper for the information for the democracy. Wow. And that, that, you know, it has to go through journalists that have all this, you know, and editors that have this knowledge and this great training. And, and you, 
that said it so that, that you know the masses aren't somehow over, I didn't whatever. know that that like, term was the, ever used positively I thought oh, it was always pejorative that's it, fascinating it sounds no, like the a, electoral actual, college yeah, of yeah. Uh, information <laughs> yeah they're like yeah, you are the evil actual, elitist um, <laughs> um, masses pacifying placating uh, opiate mm-hmm. yeah well you know this theory developed prior to the internet right it's an old older media theory right. and and with the introduction of the internet and the rise of bloggers and, and, right. and, the, and the, you know the access to publishing you know really across with very low cost of entry the explosion of, of, of uh, articles and news and information available it's it's kind of become archaic but people right. if you need, especially you know people older people I guess my age you know probably still have a fondness the idea that somehow they're special and they're, they're the gatekeepers so right. they went to school for this they paid their that, dues right yeah yeah and they you know they got their student loan debt paid and they, you know they deserve to be there and these other right. interlopers coming in are, right. are are literally in in many ways are literally threatening their their careers right. and their position but and their power I love, I love the idea that that, that yeah. sh- that Sean Penn should have confronted. I mean, it's so annoying to me when people say stuff like this. Like, it's kind of like when the when the president condemns a terrorist attack. Like, or or no no no. It reminds me of when um what's his name Seth Herzog Seth Herzog he and a bunch of other actors Jewish and non Jewish came out to condemn Hamas. Thank you because you know our country is so pro Hamas, our government is so pro Hamas. Someone has to cut through this pro Hamas propaganda, right? <laughs> if not us, then who? Right. If not now, then when? Like. Where is the pro El Chapo? What what is this media narrative of El Chapo being good that comes from what is, what is Sean Penn perpetuating? So that's one thing. The other thing is, why would you be confrontational with someone who will then not answer your questions? It's like, do we not interview people who we disagree with? I understand that he had approved of the questions, but again, Sean, I find that because Sean Penn isn't presenting himself as this traditional journalist, he's doing what he calls experien- experiential journalism. Probably right, something he, he calls, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, okay so. that's the big hypocrisy. Right. Um, and I actually posted something on Facebook to a, a comment. You got to, to, to one of your shows. I said, oh, there's actually, if you go back, there's a 2003 article from the Pointer Institute, which is like the you know voice of mainstream media, right? Right. Where they talk about the fact that pre-publication review of articles is far more common in the professional mainstream ah. world than people like to admit. It happens a lot. Judith Miller actually you know did it. And, as part of her, you know, series on, right. you know, uh, the Iraq that got her in trouble, right. but at the time she was doing it, no one said anything. Right. And you know, journalists all the time damage. make deals. Right. They make deals all the time with what you know what they'll ask. Sometimes they'll, you know, they will send in their questions in advance. You know, that happens. This stuff happens all, all the time. time right. I've done that to people. Um, no. And it, and it depends on. And I'm considered you know, a very serious journalist. <laughs> yeah, and and you know. Everyone, you know, has, has a different standard on it, and, and, and the really important thing is, you know, be transparent about what your right, standards right. are. And, and in that case, Rolling Stone right. could have not said anything, and nobody would know. Right, right, right. So, I mean, I also... They told the readers... Right. I, I also don't think that there's right. any... Sorry. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, they told their readers. They didn't try to pass this as as some kind of um, unfiltered and un, kind of pre-approved interview. But I always think... I yeah, so that is not a litmus test for being a journalist, is my point. Right, exactly. It just right. isn't. Because, the, because, because these guys that are accusing him of that, that's why maybe the New York Times hasn't waited, because they got so much egg in their face from that. Right. But the Washington Post has, right? Well, so, there you right. go. Well, I'm looking... So, what I, today I posted an image of... Um, of El Chapo, 
no, sorry, of uh, Sean Penn talking with Charlie Rose. And this is true. Charlie Rose said to him, was it naive of you to believe that you could see El Chapo without somebody knowing about it? it? And then uh, Sean Penn said, I assumed they knew about it, and I say so in the article. And I, I couldn't believe it, and I kind of cracked up and was frustrated at the same time because to me that was such a clear example of how this guy, this Charlie Rose, this traditional, you know, avuncular media figure is going to tell Sean Penn what it's really like and question his journalism, blah, 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 blah. And then he outs himself as not even having read the article very carefully. And this is the basis of, of this entire interview with Sean Penn is Sean Penn's interview with El Chapo. So couldn't he have at least pretended, gotten like better f- cliff notes from his staff? I just thought it was, yeah, it was ironic yeah. and funny. I yeah. just, I love yeah, yeah. it. And, that, and that's true. And again, of course, uh, you know, that was one of the points in Penn's article that he felt uh, he had no evidence, but he felt like he, he was being surveilled. And it right. turned out um, he, he was. I right. mean, and, and, you know, it's not a big leap to, to, to think that's the case. Right. So, and the photo showed up in the Mexican newspaper, which is, the other part of the story about the accusation that this, his interview somehow tipped the Mexican and U.S. authorities off to where Chapo is. It's an open secret, at least in Mexico, where Chapo is. I mean, it just, he's been on the run off and on since 2001. He always shows up in the same place in the, in the Sinaloa Durango border region in, in the mountainous jungles there, which is the home base of the Sinaloa cartel. And for a good reason, because he's got, you know, anywhere from 100 to 300 man security detail. And a fortress, you know, the mountains are a great fortress for, you know, uh, for defense. So it, you'd have a bloodbath in there if you went after him. And they, and they, when they went after him in, two, in uh, you know, in October of last year, after this interview, um, they essentially dislocated, some, by some estimates, up to 700 people in the area because they were, you know, they went and indiscriminately raided these 13 communities in that region. Right. So they... And both times he's been captured recently, right, in the last, whatever, two years, the most recent time, you know, just this month, um, he was in a coastal community with, with, you know, hardly any of his security guards, if any. You know, so I said in the article, you know, the big takeaway here is that Chapel Guzman, if he's allowed to leave again, which, who knows, when he books his vacations on the coast, shouldn't right. do so unless right. he get enough rooms for his full security right. detail. And what I also don't... Right, he it. should be a better vacation planner. He should use a tra- better travel right, agent. Exactly. velocity. But exactly. what I also don't understand is um, why would people be mad at, at Sean Penn if it turned out his story uh, did tip people off? Wouldn't the Mexican authorities be grateful? Or they're mad because they're embarrassed that he... Well, I don't think anyone's mad. Here's what I think is going on with that. I personally think in, 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 it has this effect, in, in whether I, with, what regards what I think, it paints a target. On, it's an attempt to take a target on uh, Penn and Del Castillo's backs because if the um, uh, drug organization, the Sinaloa organization, believes Penn was complicit in in, in the uh, capture or or the compromise uh, right. of their organization, anyway, then you know they very well might reach out and back you know. And if you read Penn's article closely, which apparently these people haven't right. in the government, he he was in contact with Chapo after that raid in October. Right. So obviously, and he went to, he flew to Mexico City to try to make another connection because they had promised to do a, a, a meeting to get a, a more in-depth uh, sit-down interview. So, you know, it was pretty clear to me that if, if you know, neither Penn nor uh Guzman were blaming each other based on what, what Penn wrote for that raid. That it's pretty apparent 
Chapo knows he was under surveillance right. prior to that. He, you know what I mean? And he was. Yeah. He's, 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 it's just well, safe. Thank you so and, much, Bill, yeah. for joining us. We're out of time, but we have to get you on again. Come in. for. Come in. Come to New York. Fly to New York. Come in for the whole show. We'll talk more about the drug war. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you're you so much. Talk, you're fun to talk to and fun to listen to. Thank you. Thanks. Come back on. Keep listening. See you guys next week at 6 p.m. As always, uh, Wednesday, 6 p.m. on WBAI 99.5 FM. Thanks for listening.